The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. As you're seated, I get the privilege today of reminding you our men's conference is coming up. Really great opportunity, men, if you've not signed up. I think this is the 15th or 16th that I've been able to go to. It's going to be the last weekend in January at Camp Tejas in Giddings, about an hour and 20 minutes from here. We've got a great speaker named Tim Kimmel, and it's a great time for us as men to really pause and consider why we're on the planet, why we live the way we live as husbands, as fathers, as people in the workplace. So if you've not signed up, great opportunity. You can grab a brochure just like this back in the lobby and sign up for our men's conference. Well, today I have the opportunity to introduce our speaker. I had the great privilege of doing that last week when Danny Cunningham, our executive pastor, kind of talked a little bit about our history and reminded us that we are part of this story. And the reason I asked Danny to do that is because we're heading into a series on Ezra and Nehemiah as we talk about what it means to be the church rebuilding. So when I thought about the history, I thought Danny would be a great person to do that. And then when I thought about our future, I thought Austin Skaggs would be great to do that. You should know some things about Austin Skaggs. Uh, there, there's a lot I could tell you, but I won't. But I will tell you, uh, Austin, Austin has lots and lots of board games. And when I say a lot, somebody asked me like more than 30, and I would say no, like more than Target cabinets and cabinets of board games. So if you like board games, you should talk to him about board games that no one else has heard of. But see, that's part of what I love about Austin. Austin enjoys people. He can be the most lighthearted person I've ever met, great to joke around with, but then he is a man who very intently follows Jesus Christ and thinks hard about what it means for us to be a surrendered people on mission for us to make disciples for the glory of God together. And so would you thank Austin for sharing with us today about what it looks like to move forward together. Really thankful that our teaching team has in fact decided to go through Ezra Nehemiah at this time because the story that Ezra and Nehemiah tell is so relevant to what we've been going through as a church. The transition that we've been going through, you heard Danny talk about it last week and, and all the change that has happened, all the change that continues. And I loved so much about what he said, but for today I wanna to highlight the things that he said aren't gonna change. Our intent to be the church, right? Temple and Bible and church. Temple being our worship of our good and great God. Bible being our love for his word and the church. Us together, saved together, now moving forward together as we seek to live out Christ's commission to take the gospel to every neighborhood and nation. Now, Chase mentioned that we're gonna be going through Ezra and Nehemiah together, and I'm very excited to hear our teaching team do that. If you've never read Ezra and Nehemiah, there's a couple of th little things you need to know for context. First and foremost, it's not really quite two different books, Ezra and Nehemiah, as much as it's Ezra and Nehemiah. They're, they're telling one collective story really together in the midst of the big story that God has been telling from the very beginning. And the story in Ezra and Nehemiah really starts back in the book of Jeremiah. Because Ezra and Nehemiah f 
fulfill what Jeremiah had prophesied. The book of Jeremiah is about a dark time in the nation of Israel. See, it's a time when they had forgotten God. They had forgotten his word and they had forgotten his command for holiness and single-minded devotion and worship. And because of that, God says he's gonna bring in a pagan kingdom to destroy their city, to to burn their temple, the place where they worship God, and then he's gonna carry them off into exile for 70 years. And then Jeremiah says at the end of those 70 years, he's going to call them back to their place and their God. And then Ezra and Nehemiah then are the two prophets that hear that call at the end of the 70 years. Ezra hears God's call to come back and and rebuild the temple and bring worship of God back to the people and bring his word back to the people. And then Nehemiah hears God's call to come back and rebuild the city, specifically the walls. And so we have the worship and the word and the walls being rebuilt. And it's that message of, of God's people rejecting him and then repenting, returning, and rebuilding that seems incredibly relevant during our own time and our story in God's bigger story because things have changed so much. There has been so much transition. There has been so many difficult things, and we are tempted, just like Israel, to forget God and to forget his word and to forget his command for holiness and single-minded devotion in worship. But before we, part, we get to that part of the story, we, get, we have to start with the gospel because Jeremiah, Ezra, Nehemiah, they're all gonna point us to the gospel. Now the word gospel means good news. And the good news of Christ is this, that God, because of his great name, In his great love, he created us. We were created to worship and obey that great name and that great love, but we insisted on our own way. We still sometimes insist on our way and not God's way, and that's called sin. And sin is awful. For lots of reasons, it creates death and destruction. It it hurts us and those around us. But most importantly, sin is awful because it is abhorrent to an almighty, righteous, and holy God. You see, God is holy. and, And the word holy means set apart from. And God in his complete holiness means that there is no sin in him. And therefore, if we were left to ourselves, if we were left in our sin, we would be forever separate from God. The Bible calls that separateness hell. And it says that hell is the eternal and ultimate consequence of our sin, to be separate from God forever. Sin also permeates everything that it touches. There's no such thing as a little sin. Sin in any form completely spoils us. It corrupts our minds and it corrupts our hearts. It corrupts our flesh. Sin has touched every single last one of us and there's nothing we can do about it. We can't cleanse ourselves from our sin. We can't take our sin away. There's no way for us to remediate our actions. There's no amount of Bible reading or church attendance or prayer that can take away our sin. Because of our sin, we are destined to experience the wrath of God. 
because God hates sin because it's evil. And from the very beginning, God has been living out his plan to eradicate the problem of evil in the world. And that includes the evil that's in us. And God will deal with the evil that's in us. And so with the consequences of sin and, and God's separateness from sin, that leaves us helpless and hopeless and in need of a savior. And that's where the good news comes in. You see, because of God's great name and his great love, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, as a savior. Christ lived the life that we could not live. He was God. He lived his life perfectly, never insisting on his way, but always submitting to God's way. He died the death that we deserved. He drank the cup of the wrath of God on our behalf. He was the perfect sacrifice in our place, the spotless lamb nailed to a cross. He bled and died on that cross, but he didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead, and in rising he gives us victory over sin, he brings us back to the Father, and he gives us his perfect record of obedience and righteousness. And then he gives us the best thing he can possibly give us, which is himself, his Holy Spirit living in us and through us. And that Holy Spirit is both our deposit for eternal salvation and our inheritance and treasure here and now. And that is very, very good news. That good news is not inherently for everyone. God did not bestow his saving grace inherently upon everyone who has ever lived. Those who ignore God, forget God, or forsake God are still destined to that awful, awful fate. And that story of forsaking and forgetting God is a long-suffering part of the story of God's people, including us, and it serves as the backdrop for Ezra and Nehemiah. Now normally our teaching team walks verse by verse through a text, and I'm so excited to hear them walk through Ezra and Nehemiah, it's gonna be really good. For today though, we need to do a survey of Jeremiah to understand Ezra and Nehemiah, and I can promise you we're not gonna walk verse by verse. But you see, the first verse of Ezra starts this way. It says, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. And therefore we have to stop in our reading because the question that pops to mind is, well, what was the word of the Lord that was spoken by the mouth of Jeremiah? And for that, we have to go back to the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah wrote during a dark time in Israel's history, their love for God had severely waned. They might not have expressed it that way, but God certainly saw it that way. You see, they had forgotten his word and his commandments God had promised to bless them, but in that blessing, they'd forgotten their God. They had flourished because of what he had done for them, but in that prosperity, they had waned in their love and remembrance of him. And unfortunately, despite as many commands around it and against it, they began to look a lot more like the pagan nations around them than God's people. Now to be clear, God has an absolute love and passion for the nations. God has a love for all of his creation. From the beginning, God's people have been called to both be holy, therefore set apart from the pagan cultures around us, 
and to bless those pagan cultures by shining the light of God to them. See, they and we were called to look distinctly different from the culture, but to redeem it through Jesus Christ. And we're supposed to shine that light to the far ends of the earth. But instead of doing that, the prosperity that God gave the people of Israel caused them to lose their upward focus and dependence on God and and they began to look inward and, and outward at the cultures around them. And they began to look like those cultures and they began to intermarry with those pagan nations. Now God had warned them in his law what that would do. Back in in Deuteronomy, God said that if they went to intermarry with those cultures, they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. And that's exactly what happened. Israel began to intermarry with the cultures and then they started compromising and forgetting God's law and then they started to worship idols, not God. And sometimes they would worship the idols instead of God, and sometimes they'd worship the idols in addition to God. And that's called idolatry. And idolatry is sin, and, and idolatry is a really big deal to God. He talks about it a lot because God desires our worship. He doesn't need our worship. You see, God does not lack anything, He's not like us. You see, from the very beginning, even f- Before the very beginning, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have been perfectly glorifying one another in perfect community. So God did not create us because he lacks anything. He created us because of his great name and his great love. And therefore we were created to worship that great name and that great love. He is the best thing in all of creation and he deserves all of our honor and praise. But Jeremiah tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. And we tend to insist on our way and not God's way, and that's called sin. It means that we worship something other than the creator. Worship is a really, really important thing. It's also an interesting thing. Every single thing we do is worship. We all give honor and praise and thought and attention and time to things. We all put our hope and our identity in something. We all find meaning and purpose in something and that is called worship. And any worship apart from God is called idolatry and idolatry is sin. In my life, there is temptation for lots of idols. Um, Sometimes it's the way my wife views me. You see, she's great, and I want her to think I'm great too. Sometimes it's the way my kids are perceived. They're awesome as well, and I want other people to get that. Sometimes it's my need for control, or my desire for comfort, or my hope for security. And I I can put those things in things other than God. And that's called idolatry. And God has been really hard on the idols in my life over the last couple of years. He's brought this phrase to mind, which is, well, if only blank would happen, then I would be blank. If only my wife would love me the way I deserve, well, then I'd be satisfied. 
Well, if only my kids turned out well, well then I'd stop worrying. If only my bank account were this big, then I'd be content. And in revealing that, I reveal that my heart turns to the creation and not the creator. And I worship those things instead. And that robs God of the praise and honor and glory that only he deserves and it, pla- it robs me of placing my identity and my security and my hope and my future in the only one who can possibly hold it, God himself. Idolatry also happens when we divide our worship or share our worship. You see, the God is a jealous God in the most beautiful sense of the word. He wants all of you. So when we worship God Sunday mornings like this, and I'm so thankful for our worship team that does such a great job, when we worship him together, we worship how great he is. But when we walk out of here and we worship the other things the rest of the week, we rob God of the praise and honor and glory that only he deserves. And God has a very specific analogy that he uses when he talks about our shared worship. He calls it adultery, and he's right to do so. You see, God wants all of you, that good and great God who lived and died and rose from the dead, he did that to win you completely. You see, we as the church are called the bride of Christ. Scripture calls Christ the bridegroom, and the book of Revelation tells of a time, the time, in which the bride and the bridegroom will come together in holy matrimony to live together forever for all eternity. And as with any marriage, there's no such thing as a little infidelity or a little unfaithfulness. When we share our worship with other things, we break our vows to God. And the book of Jeremiah is a great picture of that for us. See, God had saved his people, Israel, from slavery. He had brought them out of Egypt and into the promised land, and he'd caused them to flourish. And they did experience great prosperity. They experienced great political success and military success and financial success. And for a time, they claimed a singular worship of the almighty God of the Bible. But over time, they began to look a lot more like the culture around them than God intended. And I hope that sounds as familiar to you as it does to me. See, they had prospered, but the prosperity that they had been given by God tempted them to forget God. And after 800 years of his long suffering of their sin, God says he's not gonna do it any longer. And his judgment is coming. And therefore, he uses Jeremiah to speak to the people. And Jeremiah starts off by, rem- by quoting God and remembering their past love. There was a time in which the people loved him, but he rejects their wayward worship. You see, they're still reciting all the prayers and they're still offering all the sacrifices, but their heart is far from him. And the acts of worship and sacrifice and prayer weren't about the acts themselves, it's about the one in which we're sacrificing to, the one we're worshiping. Now what's amazing to me in the book of Jeremiah is that after 800 years of long suffering their sin, he still calls them to repentance three different times. He pleads with them to let go of their idols, but they don't. They do not repent. 
and therefore he foretells of his coming discipline. And God's gonna do the worst thing imaginable. He's gonna remove himself from them. He's going to stop listening to their prayers. He's gonna stop accepting their sacrifices. He's gonna call a pagan kingdom in who's gonna destroy their land. It's gonna destroy and burn the temple, the place where they worship God. And that pagan kingdom he even names as Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. He says, I'm gonna make Nebuchadnezzar do these things. And he says that Nebuchadnezzar is going to take the people of God and carry them off into exile for 70 years. And all the things that they held on to so dearly would then be gone. And all the things that they had placed their trust in would be removed from them. He was going to take away their false security and their false hope and their false identity. And all the things that they had put their hope in would not and could not save them from his judgment. And why is God doing all these things? Well, Jeremiah tells us at the beginning, it says, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hoed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. If you haven't yet gotten into a love relationship with God's word, Man, do I encourage you to do so. This story is so fascinating, so wonderful. One of the things that I love about it is how everything in the Old Testament points to Jesus Christ. And this is a good example of that. In the New Testament, in John chapter four, we hear a story where we see Jesus fulfilling these words. If you wanna turn there, you can. John chapter four tells the story of Jesus and a woman that comes to a well. Starting in verse five, it says this. So he, being Jesus, came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman came to draw water. And just so you see the picture, on most days when this woman comes to draw water, and I'm crying way too early, Most days there's only one well. And she draws water from that well every day, day after day. But on this day, there's two wells. There's the well of Jacob, and then there is Jesus. And they both offer water. See, the first well, the well of Jacob, when she goes to it, it satisfies, but but it doesn't last. It quenches her thirst but not for long. She has to keep coming back to it over and over. She knows, she can sense that it's broken, but she's been doing it so long. And then there's Jesus sitting beside the well and he offers something far greater and he points himself back to Jeremiah chapter two when he says these words. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will bring it, become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. So the, the woman then has three choices. She can keep going back to the old well. She can keep relying on her own efforts and keep trying and keep hoping that that broken system works this time. She can try and hold on to that well and try and hold on to Jesus at the same time. She can get a little bit of both. Or she can turn to Jesus, the fountain of living waters, and rest in him and him alone. 
But in order to, to make that third decision, she has to do something first. And that brings me my, to my favorite part of this story, which is verse 28, which starts with these words. So the woman left her water jar. She put down her jar. She put down the jar, she let go. She stopped choosing the lesser thing and she turned to Jesus, the fountain of living waters. And God is offering the same to us. Just like the people of Israel, just like the woman, he is pleading with us to put down our jars, to let go of our idols, to let go of the lesser thing and cling to the far better thing. He's calling us to repent. And repent means more than just recognizing that it's sin. It means to turn away from sin. Repentance means to turn away from. So it's more than just recognition, which is important. It's active turning away. So if your heart feels pulled this morning to repent of your idols, don't ignore that. Give into it. It is the Holy Spirit calling you to repentance, and it is important. But there is also something amazing about corporate repentance. And as we move forward together with the intention of being the church, we want to do more things like that, like be together. So we're going to actually confess together this morning. I know the second I say that, a lot of people got nervous. So just know that you can sit back and relax. I'm gonna read the confessional prayer first and then I'll have a stand and say it together if you feel called, okay? It sounds like this. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. That's from Psalm 16:4. Lord God, this is a clear and merciful warning. Those who serve other gods bring dishonor to you and sorrow to themselves. We are sorry and ashamed to admit that this often describes us. You are more generous and kind than our wildest imaginations, and yet we so easily go astray in our hearts. We confess to our shame that our hearts are prone to wander, chasing gods of achievement, approval, image, pleasure, control, and a thousand other things. How foolish, how unfaithful, how crooked we are. Have mercy on us, Lord. Remember that we are dust and show compassion on those who fear you. Forgive us of our sins. We repent and turn away from them. So I'm gonna call you all to stand. Those online, feel free to stand where you are. And if you feel the calling of Jesus towards repentance, I'm gonna have you repeat after me. Now I'll say the the verse from Psalms and then you can follow along with Lord God and beyond. Here we go. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. That's from Psalm 16:4. Lord God, this is a clear and merciful warning. Those who serve other gods bring dishonor to you and sorrow to themselves. We are sorry and ashamed to admit that this often describes us. You are more generous and kind than our wildest imaginations, and yet we so easily go astray in our hearts. We confess to our shame that our hearts are prone to wander, chasing gods of achievement, approval, image, pleasure, control, and a thousand other things. How foolish, how unfaithful, how crooked we are. Have mercy on us, Lord. Remember that we are dust and show compassion on those who fear you. Forgive us of our sins. We repent and turn away from them. Thank you, you can have a seat. Thank you so much for joining us in that prayer. Thank you for being vulnerable. Thank you for being with us. The first part of repentance is indeed the recognition and turning away from sin, but the second part is turning to Jesus Christ. You see, the example that we get in scripture, we'll see it in Ezra and Nehemiah, is this idea that repentance paves the way for God's redemptive work. 
In fact, we saw it last year when we studied the book of Mark together. The book of Mark starts this way, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that's the very first verse. And then it says, John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And then just five verses later it says, in those days Jesus came from Nazareth, Nazareth of Galilee. Repentance paved the way for the Redeemer. And while repentance is awesome, it also offers a temptation for us to turn to idols instead of Christ. And whatever we turn to in our repentance is an indicator of our worship. I'll give you an example from my own life. When God calls me to repentance over sin, I'm really left with two choices. I can, I can turn to myself or I can turn to Jesus. If I turn to myself, I'm saying that I can save me that I can be righteous, that I can be good, that I can do it on my own. And if I go to Jesus, if I turn to him, I'm repenting and I'm admitting that I can't. That I need him, that I'm relying on his righteousness and not my own. You see, God does not call us to repentance and then expect that we move forward by our own power He gives us the best thing he can give us, which is himself, his Holy Spirit inside of us. Now God absolutely calls us to a works-based salvation, okay? God calls us to a works-based salvation. It just happens that the work that our salvation is based on is the completed work of Jesus Christ and not ours. And we have to place our salvation in that. See, through Christ's redemptive work, God brings us from death to life, and then he intends for us to place our whole identity, our whole hope, our whole future in Christ's work and Christ's work alone, both in that saving moment and every day beyond. And that's what we see in the rest of Jeremiah. That story of God prophesying his coming savior, his redemptive plan for his people. It starts in chapter 23, when God says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. God's going to send a redeemer who will be their righteousness. And then six chapters later, we hear those famous words from Jeremiah chapter 29. Here it is in a little bit of context. For thus says the Lord, when the 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. So God simultaneously prophesies what he's going to do for his people in their current story and what he's going to do through Jesus Christ in the future. Two chapters later in in Jeremiah 31, God tells us how he's going to do it. When he says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And that's exactly what God did. We heard it in the good news that we talked about earlier that God, because of his great name and his great love, he sent a savior, Jesus Christ. And through Christ, he has written his law in our hearts. He has given us the Holy Spirit inside of us 
to live in us and through us, and that Holy Spirit in us is both our eternal deposit for salvation and our inheritance and our treasure here and now. You see, the decision to follow Christ absolutely has an impact in the afterlife. But God intends to be more than just your life insurance for what happens after you die. God wants and deserves to be your life here and now. And the life that God offers is the very best life of all. And so those are the questions that Jeremiah then presents to us. Have we repented of our false worship and turned to worship God and God alone? Thank you for joining in that prayer earlier. Is Christ our righteousness? Are we depending on our righteousnesses or Christ's to save us? And is his spirit active and alive in us? If the answer to any of those questions is no, now is the day to change that. You see, most of us in this room are Gentiles. And that simply means non-Jew. And the a miracle for Gentiles like you and me is that what God has promised to do for Israel at the end of time, he has done for us in the middle of time through Jesus Christ. See, there's no doubt that God is gonna fulfill every single one of his promises to Israel. He will see it completed. But for Gentiles like you and me, it is fulfilled today in Jesus. And if it's fulfilled today, then it's available today. And if it's available today, then do not put off any longer repenting and returning so that God can rebuild. So how we, since we have collectively repented together, we're gonna collectively return together. So we're gonna say another prayer. But before we do so, I have to warn you that, that, that what God offers does not come cheap. You see, the, the good gift of eternal life and salvation in Jesus Christ is absolutely free. There's nothing we can do to earn our salvation. There's no work we can do to gain our own salvation, but it is greatly costly. Christ paid the ultimate cost for it. You see, in order for us to receive that salvation, our God had to die. Hope that sinks in. That in order for us to receive the good gift of Jesus Christ, the one who created the universe had to die. And he did tragically. He was completely innocent, and yet he was falsely accused. He was betrayed by his friends. He was beaten and mocked, spit upon and stripped of all of his clothes. He was tortured. He was nailed to a cross where he he bled and he suffered and he died. And while that is awful, it is only a physical picture of a much, much darker reality that Christ took all our sin on himself. That Christ drank the cup of the wrath of God on our behalf. God's wrath was poured out on Jesus. Christ was forsaken by God in our place. The separation that that we deserved because of our sin, he endured. Therefore, the price of God's redemptive work was costly, and that cost was the life 
death and resurrection of his only son. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. And so it will cost us. In fact, it will cost us everything because God wants all of you and not part of you. He will not share you with the world. He wants you for his own. You see, God wants and deserves to be your only satisfaction and hope. God wants and deserves to be your only security and your complete identity. God wants and deserves for your past and your present and your future to rely solely on him. See, the good news of Jesus Christ is this, that God has offered us in Jesus the best thing that he can give us, which is himself. Matthew 13, 44 says it this way. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has to buy that field. Jesus is the treasure that we're talking about here. And the man sold everything he had to get it. The woman let go of everything. She put down her jar to turn to Jesus, the fountain of living waters. And Jesus paid it all on the cross. So let's respond together by returning to him the same way that we repented collectively. Let's return to him with our whole hearts. And although it may feel impossible, we can be encouraged that through God, all things are possible by his spirit. So in the power of the Holy Spirit, let's entreat him this this morning, okay? I'm gonna have us stand together. If you're at home, please stand with us. And we're gonna say one more prayer together. This one, I don't need to read ahead of time. We can just say it collectively. Here we go. Lord God, we glorify you and praise you for the glory of your grace in Christ. You have chosen us, drawn us to Christ, forgiven our sins for his sake, made us alive in him and promised us eternal life. Your steadfast love endures forever. Help us to love you with all our hearts. Lord Jesus, you have paid the bride price with your own precious blood. You satisfy us with your love. You open our eyes to the beauty of your majesty. You conquered our dark desires and destroyed death itself. All praise to you, Lord Jesus, perfect image of the Father, beautiful Savior and coming King. Holy Spirit, together with the Father and the Son, you are truly God, Lord and giver of life, comforter, counselor, advocate, and helper. You are life to our souls and healing to our flesh through the word. You inspire, illuminate, and apply the scriptures to our lives. You reveal Jesus and bring us to the Father through him. May we never grieve you, always honor you, and respond quickly to your influence. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.